This is the Fearless Presentations Podcast, the fastest, easiest way to reduce public speaking fear. Want to absolutely eliminate public speaking fear? This podcast is the answer. Here's the guy who literally wrote the book on Fearless Presentations, Doug Stannard. So hello and welcome to the Fearless Presentations podcast brought to you by the Leaders Institute and fearlesspresentations.com. I am your host, Doug Stannard, president of the Leaders Institute. And this is the podcast that helps people just like you get rid of public speaking fear and increase your success by increasing your confidence when you communicate. So Doug, what's today's hot topic? So our hot topic today is about complacency. In fact, we're going to cover seven surprising ways that your past successes can actually limit your future success. So the word complacent may just be, you know, one of the biggest enemies for success. In fact, I've noticed that, you know, if you if you look at history as well as the current business climate, you'll find that past successes almost always limit future success. That is, you know, unless you're constantly looking for new ways to improve yourself in your organization. And I have to admit, I've been both the beneficiary of capitalizing on the complacency of others as well as being the dupe who became complacent and then missed out on opportunities. I've been on both sides of this. So perhaps you'll be able to learn from, you know, both my successes and my failures and and that'll help you identify some opportunities of your own. So basically what uh, Merriam-Webster defines complacent as it's a it's a it's an adjective and it's described as marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. So basically, it's being not really being aware that real dangers are out there or missed, not being aware of the missed opportunities that are out there. And that's where a lot of us get in business, and especially in public speaking and presentation skills. We get to the point where we're a little better than what we were in the past, and so we just kind of stop growing. We stop learning. Um, so what I've done is I've, I've identified seven different things that that are important about complacencies and ways that you can you can identify opportunities in the marketplace. If you see that your uh, comp- competitors are being complacent. We'll start with the very first one. The very first one is that stagnation in the marketplace is often caused by complacency. In the early 1900s, there was a psychologist and, and uh, named William James and a bunch of other self-help gurus, Dale Carnegie and a bunch of other folks, that um, created a theory about human potential that's been really distorted and misunderstood very badly, especially in recent years. You know, For instance, in the foreword to Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, a guy named Thomas Howell says that, he basically says the following about, about uh, something that William James, um, who was a, a professor at, at Harvard, once said. He said, that, he said that Professor William James of Harvard used to say that the average man develops only 10% of his or her latent mental abilities. Now, I personally believe this is, is probably the most misunderstood statement in all self-help books. What Howell is saying there is that people rarely tap into their potential. Uh, we're all capable of more than what we give ourselves credit for. However, many people read that statement and think, oh, well, we're only tapping into 10% of our brain power. And those are two totally different statements. And I'll kind of kind of share with you some of the uh, 
challenges that come up from this misunderstanding. Motivational speakers, comic book creators totally misunderstood what that statement was kind of saying. In fact, Stan Lee created the the Incredible Hulk. You know, if you, I remember when I was a kid, Lou Ferrigno was the Incredible Hulk on on uh, I think it was probably Friday night. I don't know, but uh, but uh, the television show. And um, and basically, what that show was about was the Hulk was the alter ego of scientist Dr. David Banner, who was trying to figure out how to tap into that dormant human power within everyone. You know, and then something totally goes wrong. And um, and in recent years, you've seen movies like Limitless with Bradley Cooper, uh, Scarlett Johansson was in the, a movie called Lucy. All of these instances are where where the the people, the stars of these TV shows or movies, are trying to tap in that ten percent or that other ninety percent of their brain power. You know, they're only tapping in ten percent of their brain power. That's totally totally misunderstands what um, what Howell and William James and some of the other motivational speakers from the early nineteen hundreds were actually saying. They weren't saying that we were only tapping into ten percent of our brains. We tap into a hundred percent of our brains all the time. But we, but what they were saying was that most people have the opportunity to do more and and um, in their lives, in their careers, in their schooling, in their learning. But we fail to tap into that untapped potential. A very easy place to see this in action is in a salesperson sales activity. Uh, you know, I've, I started out as a sales guy. I've been a sales manager. I've trained a bunch of salespeople, and this is it's a. It, it's kind of a hilarious thing that, that tends to happen to sales folks. It's that our success actually leads to our ultimate destruction in, in the selling cycle. So a, a new salesperson will work to, to prospect new clients, and they do it with great vigor. So they, they come into a, a, a brand new position as a salesperson, and they and they work, 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 and then all of a sudden they start to see some success. So, so uh, a, f- a few contracts will start to, to flicker in, and then all of a sudden, all of that work they did a month ago, two months ago, three months ago, hits. And all of a sudden, contract after contract, sale after sale after sale starts to come in, and, and, and it's like the floodgates open up. And uh, the salesperson is rolling in commission. It becomes very easy to get complacent at that point. And eventually, the sales dries up, dry up. So to compensate, this salesperson will have to work even harder now to refill that sales pipeline. And it's it's this constant ebb and flow of of success and failure within a, a, um, a sales cycle or a salesperson sales cycle. Now, although the sales cycle example is is obvious from the outside looking in, many of us have similar situations in our own careers as well. You know, for instance, in my in the early uh, days of the Leaders Institute when I first started the company, I spent a ton of time working on publishing great content on my websites, and, and basically I was doing that in order to get number one people to read the website. You know, so if there's good content out there, then people will will read it. But what happened is is that the more great content that I put up on the website, the more other companies or other websites would actually link to my content, which basically drove the organic search engine stuff. So basically, we, we moved up to the top of Google fairly, well, I wouldn't say quickly, but it took a couple of years. But but within that the first couple of years, we were up in a lot of the keywords that we were targeting. We were we were up at, at a very high level of, um, of search engine ranking. So it was very easy to... to Kind of market ourselves. We didn't have to spend a ton of money on marketing just because we had you know good content that we pe- people were really interested in, right? So what what happened though was was we put in years and years and years of work, 
and then and and we got to the point where we were at the uh, top of the you know the number one spot for dozens and dozens of keywords, and then we kind of slowed down because all of that work that we put in, because of all that work anyway that we put in through those those couple of years that we stayed up in that top number one spot for for years. And then all of a sudden, we started to drop down, and it, and it took us years to get back. So basically, it's a whole lot easier to stay at the top than it is to get to the top, right? So we had to go back and do a ton of additional work to try to regain that, that spot that we had before. So what happens is that when we get to um, those levels of success, a lot of times we'll get fairly complacent, and when we do, we kind of stop doing those things that helped us become successful. So... Uh, the lesson here is that when you accomplish a tough goal, it, you always want to set a more challenging goal right away. And and if you do that, you'll continue to, to grow and to really tap into some of that untapped potential. So the second item related to complacency is that hunger for success causes us to look for opportunities, especially opportunities in the marketplace. So after I left corporate America to become a professional trainer, I started my career working with a a huge training company. And the company had over a 1,000 different sales reps worldwide, and we had over 3,000 instructors worldwide. The main product that we were offering back then was a a public three-month-long leadership class. And during the, but during the six years that I was with the company, the marketplace changed dramatically. I started noticing, especially the last couple of years that I was there, that we were averaging fewer and fewer people going through that leadership class each year. I also noticed that more and more people were coming through my classes and they were saying things like, man, three months, oh, that's a commitment. That's <laughs> really hard to commit to three months. So for the, for the last couple of years that I was actually with that, with that company, I was begging my boss to offer more courses that were kind of shorter in, in duration and year after year though you know my, the the income for for the company I was working for was dropping that wasn't huge but it was you could see it you could see the trend anyway so in those last few years I, I, I had to work unbelievably hard to make sure that my income didn't suffer and uh, and I was one of the few salespeople and instructors for that company who didn't see a significant cut in pay in those years, but it was because I worked so much harder than anybody else did, you know. So finally, I, it got hard. It got too hard, and I, and I quit. So I started. Uh, shortly after that, I started the Leaders Institute, and and um, since I kind of saw the trends in the marketplace, I wanted to specialize in much shorter duration classes. So I started doing two day classes versus three month classes, and for the first couple of years, even though they were tough. You know, because I was I was just starting out. By the time I was in business for maybe three or four years, I was teaching over three hundred classes a year. It was a we were we were booming. Uh, the most I'd ever taught, by the way, at the company that I worked for in the the, the previous years was about five. So I went from five to three hundred. So my old company had gotten complacent. They were they were living on their past successes, whereas I was hungry. So within six years. My startup was making just as, almost as much revenue, if not more, each year than the company that had left. So interesting, though, after a decade of fast growth, I became the person who was complacent, and I almost missed the next trend. So the interesting thing about hunger is that once you get to the point where you're not hungry anymore, it's it's fairly easy to get complacent and then fall into the same trap that you noticed somebody else was falling into. Um, the, the third point that we're going to cover here is about, the, about how difficult it is 
to change the the route of a, of a big organization. You know, the the old adage is, you know, the bigger the ship is, the more time it takes to steer away from danger. Think back to Titanic. Um, and I, I'll give you some examples of this. And this is these are these are kind of really funny when you look at them now, but um, it, it also there's also a greater point involved here. Back in 1982, a book was written called In Search of Excellence. It was written by Tom Peters and, and Robert uh, Waterman. And in that book, it listed a, they listed a series of case studies about, quote-unquote, excellent companies. The premise was that you know if we did in our companies what these excellent managers did in these big companies, then we'd be successful too. So the big problem was that the authors didn't anticipate um, complacency. So they, they basically, in those case studies that they that they um, that they listed in in the book, 30, there were thirty two publicly traded quote unquote excellent companies that were listed in these in these case studies. Thirty years later, ten of the thirty two companies have actually increased their success significantly. So th- th- those would be companies like Intel and Walt Disney and Walmart, and there's quite a few more, I think Boeing and, and a few others, right? So, But basically 10 out of the 32, about a third of those excellent companies are still excellent. Um, the Three of the companies are at almost the exact same level today as they were 30 years ago. Now, income has improved, but with inflation and everything, they're pretty much stagnant. So these are companies like Avon and IBM and Procter and Gamble. You know they were listed at pretty much the same spot on the Fortune 500 list today as what they were back in, you know, 1982. Um, the rest of the list of companies pretty much got complacent. You know, for instance, although Walmart did really really well in the last 30 years, another one of the picks in the book was Kmart. <laughs> Kmart really stuck to their tried-and-true direct-to-store delivery model that they had kind of innovated, whereas Walmart was working on a, a hub-and-spoke type of thing like, like uh, Southwest Airlines had done in the, in the airline industry and, and really IT-focused delivery. They were working on technology. And, and as a result of those, those, those new innovations, they grew so Walmart went from you know I don't remember exactly what it was on in on the Fortune 500 list back in 1982, but they're number one now. So Walmart is the number one company. So if they were 70 or 100 or whatever it was, they they significantly increased their standings. Um, the rest of the the companies like Kmart and some of the others, a lot of them went out of business. So now I'm sure that within these companies like like Kmart. Kodak and Atari and some of the other you know big companies of of the time that were listed on this in in the book, I'm sure that there were probably hundreds, if not thousands, of employees working for these companies. Especially like think Kodak, for instance. In the late '80s and early '90s, there were probably people at Kodak saying, you know, maybe photo paper isn't exactly going to be the future of photography. But the ship was just so big; it was so hard to turn. That you know they they and and they had so many successes in the past. They'd beaten Polaroid. Polaroid was pretty much out of business, or pretty close to it by 1982. So Kodak was was one of the most respected companies in the world. But then they got complacent. Other books like Built to Last and Good to Great. They've 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 come in the last uh, couple of decades or so. And uh, but the the point is is that. The success of these companies often lead to their downfall. All the companies that are in these these um, these great books 
um, they, they get complacent. You know, we, we get successful and we get to the point where we're no longer innovating. We're no longer looking for the, the new pitfalls and the new potentials. We're, we're not hungry anymore. And so as a result, we tend to miss out on some of those opportunities. The thing that worked really well, um, you, you know, when, when I was uh, growing the Leaders Institute, especially the Fearless Presentations classes, was that... I had an advantage over that company that I worked for before, that big, huge company that had 3,000 instructors. If they wanted to make even a single change to one of their public speaking classes, it took years. It took years to retrain 3,000 people. Whereas when it was just me, you know, if, if I saw things that worked in my class, I kept them. If there were things that didn't work, I, I took them out and changed them. We, we made alterations very quickly. And so in the first couple of years that the Fearless Presentations class was being taught, at a time when there was a lot of changes going on in the marketplace, especially with visual aids and PowerPoint and all kinds of stuff back then that were that was changing fairly quickly, my company was able to adapt because we had a smaller ship. It was easier for us to, to steer away from the danger and and, and tap into that that uh, those opportunities that were out there. So so keep that in mind. As a company gets bigger, it's much more difficult to to make those changes, and so you constantly got to be looking for those opportunities in the marketplace. Um, the next point is that skills and knowledge that we acquire to become successful creates a perception of loss if we change. You know, the, the, this challenge occurs in both companies and in individuals. And I'll give you an example that that's it's kind of a little outside of my expertise. So if you're actually in this industry, don't don't send me a bunch of hate mail. You know, but photography has changed so dramatically in the last decade or so, um, with especially with smartphones. So if you think about it, a decade ago. If, if you wanted a great family portrait or some type of business photography done, you had to hire a professional photographer, and if you did that, you, you had a better chance of getting a, a really good result. Today, though, with smartphones and Photoshop and Internet connections, even a nov- novice photographer can create, can create some, some pretty professional images. Uh, the big question is, how many professional photographers out there have exchanged their expensive cameras for iPhones? And I'd guess that the answer to that question is probably not very many yet. Although as a result of this, I, when I when I kind of created the blog post for this or the, the show notes, um, I, I went and did some research just to kind of see what photographers were saying about iPhones. And, and, and actually, it's starting to happen. There are more and more photographers out, photographers out there, professional photographers, who are using iPhones as their main um, piece of technology in uh, to satisfy their clients and get better results. So. I had a similar challenge in my own career, by the way. Um, it, it, uh, by the way, let me kind of go back and, and reinforce that a little bit. If if you think about it, if you're if you happen to be a professional photographer, it takes years of skill development. At least a decade ago, it did. Anyway, you have to have just the right equipment, and the equipment, by the way, is critical. And then the skill to use that equipment appropriately takes time and that's always been one of the main barriers to entry in this in this industry so it's really difficult for a professional photographer in today's world to say you know all of that time and all that effort that I put in to get really really good at this skill isn't nearly as important as what it was in in the past and we tend to hold on to it even though because it's a loss you know if we if we give up on that it, it seems like a loss now I had a similar challenge in my own career um 
my bachelor's degree from college is actually in petroleum land management. I was planning to be the next J.R. Ewing. And for those of some of you are kind of listening to this and you don't, you never saw the the TV show Dallas in the eighties or nineties and you go, who the heck is J.R. Ewing? But anyway, he was a rich guy on TV. Anyway, I wanted to be a rich guy. So when I graduated from school though, the price of oil was like, it was a 30 year low. So it, it took me the better part of four years to to finally shift to an entirely new industry after school because I'd spent so much time studying the industry, studying that, becoming a part of of that original industry. In retrospect, though, one of the best decisions I'd ever made. Because I feared the loss of all that time and effort that I spent in in college, I kind of stuck to it probably a year or so longer than, than maybe what I should. So the next area we're going to focus on is is really about the devil you know is better than the devil you don't, uh, and I'll give you a good example of this. You know, so the, and this this really leads into how complacency can really hold us back. In two thousand and nine, what my company was really booming. We we were growing pretty dramatically. Um, we we finally centralized our customer relationship management software, a CRM software that we use for my company. Up until that point, we had been using a, um, I, I had a, a web, fo- web form piece of software that was on, on my website and folks would, you know, would request information that went into a, a, a database. And we, we basically every once in a while, we would download, download that into Excel and then we'd use Outlook to, to send out follow-up emails and stuff like that. But it wasn't, there wasn't anything automatic, wasn't anything that was, um, that was continually, Staying in contact with our prospects and with our customers, so we finally invested in a in a, a really well known CRM at the time, and um, it, the the neat thing about that was that it, it although it took a lot of time to to uh, implement that that CRM. Um, we uh, we basically kind of stuck with it for a long period of time, and it, and it was one of the early CRMs in the industry. I mean, if you remember back, for those of you who've been in in business for a while, the, there's a good chance that you were probably really familiar with like Mailchimp and Constant Contact and some of those real early companies that that were doing um, email software follow up. And um, and so in the the software that each one of those organizations has right now isn't anywhere close to what it was ten years ago or or you know two thousand nine anyway. And that's kind of the way we were. We basically spent a lot of time, and as a result of spending that time, we we started having a huge success right away. So basically, we started getting more of our customer or more of our prospects were turning into customers. Our customers were coming back and buying more stuff from us. It was it was a, a really good system, and um, but. From time to time, we'd have challenges. <laughs> so, you know, there'd be some kind of glitch in the CRM, and and you know, folks who were su- supposed to get a certain type of email ended up getting the wrong email and stuff like that. So, those little glitches kept popping up, and over time, they kept popping up more and more and more often, and and eventually, we we had to kind of break down and rebuild the whole system from scratch. We had to basically start over. And and uh, but we we kind of put that off for years. We put off rebuilding that system because of all the time, because of all of the early success that we'd have and because 
you know, we knew what those glitches were. We knew if we started over from scratch and there was that we didn't we didn't know what kind of glitches we'd get in the new system. So as a result, we kind of stuck with the devil that we knew much much longer than maybe what we should have. So, what the 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 thing to kind of keep in mind about this is that once we kind of bit the bullet and and rebuilt the whole system from scratch, sales increased dramatically in a month. And month after month after month of that new release, we were we were uh, we were kind of kicking ourselves, going, "God, man, we should have done this years ago. We should have done this a long time ago." And uh, so keep that in mind. That a lot of times, though, that that um, that risk of failure that we talked about before. That that if we if we make a change, we're risking failure. And you know we're we you know we we don't really like what we're doing now, but we know the effect, and so as a result, we can we can live with it. The devil, you know, type thing. Those are things that will hold people back and make us more complacent. Um, the the one of the the last couple of things we're going to cover here is what I call the Avis We Try Harder effect. And years ago, in fact, I. I haven't seen a lot of Avis commercials in a long time, but I remember growing up when I was a kid, apparently Avis started running these commercials back in the 70s, and they were the We Try Harder commercials on, on TV. And, you know, Hertz was has always been, or for years and years or decades anyway, has been, you know, the number one rental car agency in the world. Avis was number two. So Avis created this whole marketing campaign called the We Try Harder campaign. And they were acknowledging that they were not yet number one, but they were working really hard to get there. And basically what they were insinuating was that the number one company, Hertz, had become complacent. Complacent, right? And, and of course, the insinuation is that Avis hadn't, right? So there's a, there's, there's a mentality that often slips into the culture of a top company when, when you become number one. You automatically assume that you will always be number one, no matter what. However, the number two, the number three, the number four, and the number 1,000 companies are always working harder to move up. Um, I'll give you a good example of this. You know, last year, Samsung passed up Intel as the number one chip maker in the world. Intel, for decades, has, has been one of those. It, by the way, that was one of the excellent companies from, 19, from the 1982 book. And um, But there was a recent article in The Verge that talked about how Apple will be replacing the Intel processors in their Mac computers with the Apple-created processors. The reason for the breakup was that improvements in the Intel processors have kind of stagnated in the last few years. And Apple believes that their own chips on, on the iPhones have actually passed the quality of the Intel chips in the computer processors now. So the so you know I guess I guess it remains to be seen how Intel will actually um, re- respond or, or react to to this news. You know, are they going to now that they've slipped from that number one spot? Are they going to do the we try harder <laughs> campaign to revamp their organization? Uh, because that's exactly what's been driving Samsung and Apple, right? And then finally, um, the the one thing to really keep in mind that you want to really pay attention to when we're talking about complacency is that the complacency of others that allows us to succeed actually sometimes envelops us as well. So be very, very careful about this. You know, I mentioned this one earlier in the in the podcast, but it's important to kind of reinforce the this because it's an important point. As we grow as employees, as we grow as managers, as we grow as business owners, we're in a constant state of improvement. We're looking for any edge that we can to create or exploit something in the marketplace. And and once we start to experience success though, it's really easy for that the same activities that that made us successful 
those same activities will allow others to replace us at those top levels. So the best way to ensure that this doesn't happen is to continue to grow in skills and knowledge. You can tap into that that additional untapped potential that we talked about earlier in the, in the, the very first point that I talked about. If you can tap into that untapped potential, you can really accomplish a, a whole lot more in the marketplace. That's one of the reasons why you know when f- folks come to our uh, our public speaking classes, one of the one of the nice things that we have in our in our uh, a policy anyway that we have with our company is that once somebody comes through the fearless presentations class, for instance, if we have if we have space available in any future class, all they have to do is just call us and and we'll put them on the roster and and let them come to the class again for free. So we don't even charge them. And um, the neat thing about that is that it's a it's a fantastic way to continue to grow because once somebody kind of goes through a, a growing process like that once, and then goes out and use that in 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 the business world in the real world when they come back they're at a much different level. And so now they're picking up new skills. They're learning things in a, in, a, in a new way. They're seeing things from a different light. And that's one of the things that I always encourage people to do is no matter how successful that you become, you need to constantly be going out and honing those skills, be looking for new things that are in the marketplace, listen to the podcast, go to seminars, you know, especially um, hang around with people that are in your industry at association meetings and stuff like that because you'll be able to pick up great information that will help you continue to grow even once you get to those those top spots so that complacency doesn't sit in. So thanks a lot for being a part of the Fearless Presentations podcast. Make sure if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. That way you get every single one of these uh, of these uh, of the episodes when they come out. So we'll see you next week. Subscribe to this podcast for new public speaking secrets each week.